So at this time of year, uh, it's fairly common to see a nativity scene. A stable, a few animals, Joseph, Mary, a shepherd or two. And then always a few wise men laying gifts before the Christ child. As the story goes, these wise men have come to worship the child. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Going into the house, the wise men saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. But I think few people realize just how subversive this worship really is. According to Matthew chapter 2, you know, not everyone is worshiping the child. King Herod claims he wants to worship the child, but we know it's really to serve himself. Herod wants to know where the child is so that Herod can destroy any threat to his political power. In fact, when he learns that the wise men trick him, Herod orders all the boys, two years old and younger, to be slaughtered. And it's a horrific event. Herod hates the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus subverts Herod's lordship and Herod's politics and Herod's glory. So the Christmas story confronts us with a worship question. Will you surrender all your loyalties to Jesus and worship Him? Or will you remain part of the evil kingdoms vainly trying to destroy the worship of Jesus? Will you surrender all loyalties to Jesus and worship Him? Or will you remain part of the evil kingdoms vainly trying to destroy the worship of Jesus. Like Matthew's Gospel, the book of Revelation confronts us with the same worship question. In Revelation, God divides creation into two groups, and you can only be in one of these two groups. You're either in the group of those who worship God and the Lamb... Or those who worship idols and trust human power and give themselves to the beast's allurements, especially idolatry, political might, earthly gain, and sexual immorality. So one way that Revelation compels our worship of Jesus is by unveiling the majesty and worth of Jesus. You may have heard Revelation described as apocalyptic literature. It's more so a prophecy like that of Daniel or Zechariah, but there's certainly overlap with apocalyptic, and one overlap is how it unveils the way things really are, but from a transcendent perspective. It's like giving you heavenly eyewear so that you can see the world as it is from God's perspective. Revelation pulls back the curtains so that we see the world from 
heaven. It's, it's not just, say, a seductive image on your phone, but a beast behind that image winning the worship for the dragon. It's not just China right now arresting Christians, but the dragon himself waging war on the saints because he knows his time is short. And so it's into that situation that God unveils the glory of Jesus so that the worshipers of Jesus stand firm in their allegiance to Him. The point is not mere foresight into God's unfolding plan. It's to awaken obedience in God's people and to reassure them of His favor Upon them. Verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The point is persevering in obedience to Christ. That's certainly echoed in the repeated words of chapters 2 and 3 written to the churches to him who overcomes or to him who conquers. But to compel that obedience, to compel our loyalty to Jesus, God unveils the glory of Jesus and His saving purpose in Jesus. A significant part of that unveiling is Jesus' Godhood. In John's Gospel, we studied the Son's deity before the creation of the world. We also studied the Son's deity once the Son became flesh took on our humanity. Jesus' words, Jesus' works, Jesus' death, Jesus' spirit, they all lead John to say, we saw glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Well, Revelation continues John's narrative, but now unveils Jesus in His glorified state as the God-man. How do we know that? Because in chapter 1, verses 9 to 20... John says so. John describes Jesus' majesty with a mosaic of Old Testament images, and we'll be looking at some later. But in verse 17, he says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died... And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's how we know it's the glorified Jesus. He's witnessing. I died, I'm alive forevermore. Nobody else can say that. Death always terminates earthly rulers. Jesus is the sole ruler who conquered death. He has the keys. He has authority over the grave. And now John sees the glorified Jesus and writes about Him for our sake. And in the process, he reveals Jesus as God in at least four ways uh, that we'll look at today. One more we'll look at next week for the whole uh, sermon. But four ways here in Revelation to begin. Jesus' words are God's very words. We saw this in John's Gospel as well, but here we see it. Jesus' words are God's very words. Look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 
Again, I'm going to put some of these on the screen for you. Uh, But it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Jesus to show to His servants. And so so you see here, God the Father stands as the source of Jesus' revelation. But then in verse 2... It says the word, we see that the word of God parallels the testimony of Jesus Christ. You could even translate verse 2 like this. John bore witness to the word given by God, namely the testimony given by Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. Jesus' testimony further describes God's self-revelation. But something else is how Jesus' testimony differs from other witnesses in Revelation. So you've got all kinds of witnesses in the book of Revelation. You've got angels who bear witness. You've got John who bears witness. You've you've got uh, the church itself bearing witness and other prophetic servants bearing witness. But Jesus delivers God's word in a manner that's far superior to God's angels and servants. And we see this superiority in the prophetic oracles of chapters 2 and 3. So look at chapter 2, verse 1, and notice how Jesus begins his words, the words of him who holds the seven stars. Uh, And then in chapter 2, verse 8, the words of the first And the last, and then chapter 2, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Each of these images are reaching back to the, the, the vision he just seen, he has just seen of the glorified Jesus. But we, but four times, uh, after this, we also hear the words of, the words of this glorified Jesus. Well, that, that little phrase appears repeatedly in the Old Testament, to introduce prophetic utterance. You may have read it in your Old Testament before. Thus says the Lord. Thus says. That little phrase is the same phrase here that the ESV translate the words of. Thus says. When the prophet said... Thus says the Lord, people received the message as the very words of God, but not because the words originated with the prophet. Okay, the word originated with God and was delivered through the prophet. Well, what distinguishes these oracles is that they come directly from the glorified Jesus Christ. It's not merely a matter of, thus says the Lord, it's a matter of, Thus says the first and the last, and thus says the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, thus says me. Thus says Jesus Christ. And John is then the prophet who's delivering Christ's words, just like they delivered Yahweh's words in the Old Testament. Even more... The prophets would explain how God and not the prophet would judge those who rejected their words. God would also reward those who obeyed their words. But in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus says that he himself would judge those who failed to listen to his words. And that he himself would, would reward those who listened to his words. 
Uh, Consider the judgment in chapter 2, verse 16. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Or chapter 2, verse 26, in terms of a reward. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over over the nations. No mere prophet could ever say that. Jesus can say that because his words carry the same authority reserved for God alone in the Old Testament. Now, to be clear, Revelation still maintains Jesus' distinction from God the Father. The Father still gives to Jesus what to say. We saw that in verse 1 of chapter 1. But at the same time, Jesus says those words as God himself. Jesus' words manifest God's self-revelation directly and immediately. Angels only deliver it. John writes it and the church must obey it. Next, uh, Revelation takes Old Testament metaphors unique to God and he applies them to Jesus. Old Testament metaphors unique to God and applies them to Jesus. And I want to start with the unique title... The Alpha and the Omega. Now this phrase, the out, this, this title, the Alpha and the Omega, it doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. But in Revelation, this title uh, gets, um, it appears besides two other titles that explain uh, what it means. Um, you might have picked up what it means the Alpha and the Omega being the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, right? This, this isn't the Apostles' fraternity. In chapter 22, verse 13, we find these other two titles set right, next, right, set right beside it. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So the first and the last and the beginning and the end, they're... They're the equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. And this title, the first and the last, does appear in Scripture in uh, Isaiah. Three times. Isaiah 41, verse 4, 44, verse 6, and 48, verse 12. You can see them on the screen. But when, when this title occurs, the context, I need to give you the context, each time... What's happening is God is distinguishing himself from the nations and their idols. The nations and their idols lack any power to determine the future. But God, who is the first and the last, not only knows the future before it takes place, he creates the future by his sovereign word. And so you get these discourses in Isaiah where God is basically mocking and laughing at the idols because they can't do anything... Versus himself, who creates history with his word. And so this title, the first and last, has a polemical edge that is hacking down the idols of the nations. And that's what's bound up with this title, the Alpha and the Omega. Or the first and the last. God knows the end from the beginning. His words create and govern history. Neither the nations nor their idols are really in control. Now, in Revelation, both God and Jesus self-identify as the Alpha and the Omega, or the first and the last. 
So God says it of himself in chapter 1, verse 8, and 21, verse 6. You can see it there on the screen. And Jesus says it of himself in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 22, verse 13. And the link couldn't be clearer. Jesus can say this of himself only if he is truly God. And let's look next at Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, Remember that John sees the glorified Jesus here, but he describes him like this in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Well, in Daniel 7, 9, the same words describe the Ancient of Days, who is Yahweh. Daniel 7, 9, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Uh, Even more, in Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet sees a vision of Yahweh seated on his fiery throne chariot. And Ezekiel also sees these four living creatures around God's throne, and in verse 24... Of Ezekiel 1, he describes the sound of the wings of these four living creatures like this. It was as the sound of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty. Many waters, like the voice of the Almighty. So to hear God Almighty speak was comparable to a tumult of waters. Think Niagara Falls, but greater And Revelation 1.15 says this of Christ. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In other words, the voice of the glorified Jesus is the voice of God Almighty. A third observation. John will also take Old Testament motifs or themes that kind of run throughout Scripture... These motifs are themes that are unique to God, and he will apply these themes to Jesus as well. Uh, Take the day of judgment, for example. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 19, describes it this way. People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord... And from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Isaiah 13. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. And the sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of Yahweh. Of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And Joel chapter 3 the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord Yahweh roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth they quake. And so you have this Old Testament motif of God's final judgment, and, and when he shows up, it's a day of great dread and cosmic upheaval. Well, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 to 17, if you want to just turn a couple pages. 
I didn't have room to get all this one on the screen, but Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 12, when the Lamb opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the day the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So he's taking that Old Testament imagery and then saying, from the wrath of the Lamb. This is a bit of an aside, but brothers and sisters, this is also why Matthew 27 says that the earth shook and the rocks were split when Jesus died on the cross. The images recall God's judgment falling on the nations. Only at the cross, the wrath of God falls on Jesus in our place. If you trust in Jesus to save you, you won't need to hide yourself from the wrath of the Lamb on that day. He already bore that wrath in your place. That's why God's Son had to become man. To be your human substitute. Another motif relates to the title of Jesus in Revelation 19, verse 16. Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now that comes from Daniel 4.37 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. So the, the context, uh, you may be familiar with it, especially you kids, we, we, we do this in, in dig classes, right, where, where Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by the Lord and he has to go eat grass like an ox and his fingernails grow out. And then Nebuchadnezzar finally repents and, and Nebuchadnezzar's reason returns to him and then he honors Daniel's God, who is the Most High, and as he does, he gives the Most High this title, God of gods and Lord of lords and King of kings. Now, Nebuchadnezzar does this because Yahweh alone has the power to remove kings and set others in their place. Well, in Revelation 19, John envisions Jesus removing all rebel kingdoms and establishing his own people to reign in his earthly Kingdom, And it's here that he gives him the title reserved for the Most High alone, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, Jesus is the Most High who refuses to share his glory with another. Uh, here's another motif, and, and this one's really beautiful. Uh, do you remember how Ezekiel and Zechariah, they anticipate a river of life? flowing from the temple. This, this river of life in Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah uh, 14, verse 8 and 9. 
you get this enthroned presence of Yahweh in the temple and, and the river of life flows from the temple and it gives life to all that it touches. And it's a really amazing prophecy because God's glory had once departed from the temple because of the people's rebellion and the land had become a desert and destitute. But then God shows mercy and he promises to return to the temple and then from his enthroned presence would come a river giving life to all that it touched and God's glory presence would basically turn the earth into a paradise that makes Eden blush. And so get this, in Revelation chapter 22 verse 1, John sees the river of the water of life flowing from the one throne of God and of the Lamb. He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Hear that. Flowing from the throne, the one throne, of God and of the Lamb. So both God and the Lamb share the throne. And we know that because in chapter 3, verse 21, Jesus' throne is simultaneously His Father's throne. Also in chapter 5, verse 11 to 13, the Lamb approaches the throne and all of heaven includes the Lamb in the worship of God. In other words, God and the Lamb share the one single throne, making them both the one source of the river of life. So again, John takes this theme from the Old Testament and sees it fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, since I mentioned all heaven, including Jesus, in the worship of God, let's move there next. Jesus the Lamb receives worship reserved for God alone. Jesus the Lamb receives worship reserved for God alone. Look at chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. Uh, John writes about Jesus to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. You've got to love that, right? The present tense there versus the past. He loves us still loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So John's Christology leads to doxology. Who Jesus is and what he has done for us leads John to worship and he's telling the church to him be glory. Now to render Jesus glory is not to give Jesus something he doesn't have or that he lacks. It's to recognize the worth that he has. And what may surprise John's readers though is that glory is something regularly attributed to God in Revelation. In Revelation, God possesses glory that manifests His intrinsic worth. It's usually seen like the throne room of chapter 4 and, and, and other places like that. 
where his glory is on display. God's creatures must recognize his glory in praise and devotion. So this would come with like the angels declaring, fear God and give him glory. And then terrible judgments fall on those who refuse to give God glory. Yet, John does not hesitate to call us to give Jesus glory. (laughs) In other words, giving Jesus glory fits into this broader theme where to worship anything else and to worship anyone else alongside God is idolatry and merits judgment. And John's point is that Jesus receives glory without compromising true worship. Because Jesus is one with his Father in worth and glory. So Jesus implied that himself in John's Gospel. We just didn't read it last week. But the Father has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. It's John 5, 23. So when witnessing to... Uh, Jehovah Witnesses. I like taking them also to Revelation chapter 4. And turn there. And John, here in chapter 4, sees God's glory in the throne room. And the heavenly creatures rightly worship the Almighty. And then down in verse 11 it says... Uh, they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And I'll ask Jehovah's Witnesses, who alone is worthy of worship like, like this that we see here in chapter 4? And without biting an eye, batting an eye, they, they say, Jehovah God alone. Right, I say. And then I ask them, let's look at chapter 5 together. Which continues the throne scene? There wasn't a break. It's one piece, the chapters 4 and chapter 5. And I ask them, why is the Lamb receiving the same worship in verses 12 and 13? Let's read it together. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. Same word that was used in chapter 4. And wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor. Same word. And glory. Same word. And blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So I asked, why, why is he receiving the worship? No answer. They have no answer.
not to worship Jesus is to trivialize the glory that all heaven witnesses about him. So that's four ways Revelation unveils Jesus' Godhood. Jesus' words are God's very words. Several metaphors and motifs reserved for God alone in the Old Testament get applied to Jesus, and Jesus receives worship reserved for God alone. Now, if that's all true of Jesus, and we have every reason to believe that it is, then Jesus deserves our exclusive worship. And I'm not just talking about showing up Sunday morning to sing. That declarative worship in in song and confession is but one piece. Our demonstrative worship, what Romans 12 calls the offering of our bodies as a living sacrifice, that's the New Testament emphasis. If Jesus is God, we must surrender all loyalties to Jesus Christ every day, in everything, and with everyone. That's our worship. And this is the distinguishing mark of Christianity. We worship Jesus as God. If if you asked pagans of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, what distinguished Christianity from all other religions, the pagans would answer the exclusive worship of Jesus. They knew this about the church. It's in their writings against Christians. They mock Christians for it. Maybe you've seen the Roman graffiti before that dates back to about 8200. And there's a man bowing before a cross, and on the cross is a man with a donkey's head. And then the picture says, Alexamenos worships his God. So pagans knew what distinguished Christianity, the worship of Jesus. They just thought it was ridiculous, hence the donkey's head. They thought it was ridiculous. Even more, they knew it was subversive. They knew it was subversive because here's the thing, the true worship of Jesus cannot be privatized. Our culture will tell you, keep your religion private. This worship of Jesus can't be privatized. When you surrender all loyalties to Jesus, by necessity, that will affect your public discourse and engagement. An inward allegiance to Jesus will proactively resist whatever compromises the worship of Jesus and publicly testify to whatever supports the worship of Jesus. Because... Jesus doesn't deserve to be worshipped only by you. All nations owe Jesus their worship. And therefore, the worship of Jesus becomes a very public matter. In Revelation, and really the rest of the Bible too, everybody is a worshipper. It's just a matter of whom you worship. Either you worship Jesus, or you worship Satan and his beast. In Revelation, Satan and the the beast lure the world into false worship and they do it with idolatry and sexual immorality and economic exploitation and political one-upmanship. 
And people buy the lies of the beast's ideology and they give themselves to his kingdom and their their slavery to his worship gets so bad that even when God brings horrific judgments as warning signs of his coming, they don't care. They don't repent. They continue worshiping the beast and his images and demons and all kinds of other things. And so it's within this setting that the church's worship of Jesus gets tested. Right, John is, John is writing this to the churches as, as he himself is going through the tribulation. And we are in the same tribulation. And in this tribulation, our worship of Jesus gets tested. Brothers and sisters, just because you're a Christian, don't think that you're beyond the, de- the beast's deception. In chapter 2, verse 14, in chapter 2, verse 20, and in chapter 3, verse 17, two churches get led astray by false teachers into idolatry and sexual immorality, and another gets led astray by its own self-confidence. And Christ rebukes all of them as well and threatens judgment if they don't repent. How worthy Christ is to us is first and foremost a question for us who call Him Lord and God. And in Revelation, the church's worship of Jesus gets tested in in several ways. In chapter 2, verse 10, the church is warned that Satan will cast some of them into prison and they will have to be faithful unto death. What would your worship of Jesus look like in the face of persecution? I mean, it's easy for us to say he's worthy while sitting in a setting like this. But how worthy is Jesus when someone puts a gun to your head and says, deny him? We should be praying for hearts that will so treasure Jesus' worth that we can be faithful unto death. In Revelation, the church's worship of Jesus also gets tested by worldly treasures. In chapter 3, verse 17, the church in Laodicea says they're rich and they have need of nothing. Also in chapter 13... Uh, If anybody wants to buy, sell, or trade, they have to receive the mark of the beast. And so you have this choice. Do I identify with the beast? John's writing in, in the day of Roman power. Perhaps this is, did you give your incense to the emperor? And if you do identify with the beast and his kingdom, well, then you get all the luxuries of the kingdom. You can buy and sell and trade. You have this choice. You can identify with that and get all the luxuries that you want, or you can worship Christ and remain loyal to his kingdom no matter how counterculture that loyalty becomes. But when you choose to worship Christ over the beast and over money, either you starve to death because you can't buy, sell, or trade, or the beast people murder you. This is, this is Revelation 13, verses 15 to 17. So there's this question. It's holding up. It's, you're going to be tested, church. You're going to be tested 
People are going to exalt money. They're going to, you're going to want money. You're going to want treasures and earthly treasures and lots of them. And you've got to make a choice. Are you going to, is your allegiance going to be to Jesus? Or to the beast? Or consider how the church's worship of Jesus would be tested before Roman political powers. In much of Revelation's imagery, like Babylon and the harlot of chapter 17, John is kind of winking in the background about Rome. And other kingdoms like Rome. Caesar is Lord there. And often that meant people treated Caesar with utmost reverence and never questioned his rule. And if you did, you got your head cut off. Well, worshiping Jesus as God actually relativizes the emperor's political authority, doesn't it? Worshiping Jesus means no person, no government, no regime has the ultimate say. Christ is the true Lord and God, and he alone has the ultimate say. So we don't just participate in, the, in whatever earthly ruler's empire it is with, with no critical judgment or anything, just going along with everything he says. No, if he says something in which we must disobey Christ in order to follow him, we don't follow him. Right? But here's what was even more irritating for Rome. Worshiping Jesus said the rule of God wasn't with Rome and its elite. The rule of God was with Jesus, whom Rome helped crucify. And the rule of God was with the worshipers of Jesus, who were often persecuted and martyred by Rome. Beloved, we live in a culture where America is numero uno. Where people can worship whatever God they want as long as that God serves our country. And serves our country's interests. And where even some Christians put America's interests above those of Christ's kingdom. Is it a blessing to live here? Absolutely. Do we have much to be thankful for? Absolutely. But let's be careful not to be deceived by the beast in the process. He works in subtle ways to lead people astray. Rome looked really good on the outside. And it offered a lot of the other people on the outside of Rome lots of attractive things to come inside to Rome. We'll offer you peace and security inside of our borders, but once you get on the inside, it's full of abominations. Well, America has its own abominations. And to display the worth of our Lord and God, we must resist those abominations. And we must expose those abominations. And we do this through our worship of Jesus. And through our witness of Jesus. So whether it's putting our country's interests above those of Christ. Or our culture using sex or sexiness to sell just about anything. Or our culture elevating organized sports to a place of worship. 
and adoration or our culture saying that your comfort and your convenience matters most in your ethical decisions when it comes to human life. Whatever the idolatry is, we must resist any participation in it and expose it because Christ alone deserves exclusive worship. So to worship Him means to go His way and to follow His words and to uphold His justice even when the world hates it. But by doing so, here's what we become. We become a visible testimony to the world. We become a faithful representation to the world of what the heavenly multitudes already recognize about the Son of God. And we become a people who prefigure what God's final kingdom on earth will reveal about Jesus' glory. All of history is working toward the universal worship of Jesus. So let's be a little outcropping of that final worship. And let's give Him praise and glory and honor now as we sing together before we eat together. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.